0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Good evening, everybody. My name is Harry Helley. I'm the Executive Director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. I'd like to welcome you this evening. It is my great pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening, Dr. Davi Kasev. Davi is an Assistant Teaching Professor in Marine Biology, research division here at Scripps. His research interests are in the field of ecology, marine biology, and with a special focus of understanding the ecology of migratory shark species. His research is focused on using molecular techniques used to analyze mako and thresher shark populations and migration patterns in the Southern California Bight. He hopes to incorporate these findings in the future fishery management plans for those species um, to ensure a viable pelagic shark populations, of course, and then more recently as a postdoctoral scholar here with NOAA's Southwest Fisheries Center, Davi's work has turned to the application of next generation genetic sequencing to identify the early life stages of fishes and to answer questions of fishery science. At Scripps, most of Dobby's time is spent teaching marine biology and ecology labs and courses, but he's also going <clears throat> to excuse me, continue doing his work and his field work and in involving undergraduate students in research based active learning experiences. Dobby grew up traveling between San Diego and South Africa, where animals in the ocean quickly became his passion. He holds a PhD in ecology from a joint program offered by San Diego State University and UC Davis, and he holds a BS in marine biology. Biology and Economics from UCLA. Please join me in welcoming Davi for his talk entitled Shark Geek, A Window into Shark Movement in Southern California.
0: So thank you, everyone, for being here. I'm going to pretend you're here for me, not because sharks are cool. It's weird that when I give talks about larval fish, we don't get 400 people, Um, but it's really great to see so many people here. I wasn't nervous about the crowd until I just ran into my junior high science teacher, who <laughs> was one of the people that set me down this track. And now I really have to do a good job, otherwise I might not make it to high school. Um, but you know, I'm here to talk about sharks. Sharks are something that I've, you know, I've really been interested in sharks since I was a kid. I just never grew out of it. Uh, and you know, to be able to be here and to share some of this information, what I've learned and what other people have learned about sharks, is it's just really a pleasure and it's fun. So thank you all for being here and for this opportunity. And this is especially exciting for me because I know this uh, perspectives in ocean sciences is linked to Professor Jeff Graham, who was one of my research mentors in Heroes. Uh, and so to be able to be here and presenting under his namesake is really exciting. And When he retired from Scripps, I actually stole this sign from his office, the shark crossing sign. Um, So now that I'm back at SIO, it's fun that I get to now hang this up back in an office at Scripps. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, So here in this picture, this was on a research cruise back in um, the mid-2000s, and here we have myself and Jeff Graham. Uh, I remember him, I think he was telling me, stop trying to save all the sharks, we need their data, it's okay. but again, it's really fun to, to be here and be a part of this, so thank you. Um, as I as mentioned before, I'm an assistant teaching professor here at SIO, which is a new position for me and a new position for SIO. So, really, my job is to be one of the driving forces behind the undergraduate marine bio program at UCSD. And that's really exciting for several reasons. One is that's my office view. It, <laughs> Rivaled only by the view here at the aquarium which makes me jealous still. Uh, It's also really amazing because I get to have the coolest colleagues in the world. I mean, the research that's coming out of SIO is really incredible. I have colleagues that are discovering new species of, you know, fish, of shrimp, of uh, people that are going out and looking at the effects of climate change. It's one of the first places where climate change was documented, um, and I get to be a part of that. And not just do I get to be a part of that community, I get to help translate that information to a really amazing crop of undergraduate students. And one of the fun things about teaching undergraduate students, it's also one of the the fun things about being here today is talking scientists among scientists. It's really easy to get jaded about what's cool, right? Um, but when you work with the students and you teach them something that you take for granted because you know it really well and then you see how excited they are to learn it, it really re-energizes my love for science. And I get the opportunity to teach this year. is my first year here, so this is my second quarter at, at UCSD. But I'm te- I taught last quarter an introduction to marine biology, which is a fun class to teach. It was about 200 students in the lecture, so smaller than this one. And unlike them, you guys actually all want to be here, which is fun. Um, <laughs> i taught a marine biolaboratory. Right now I'm teaching biostatistics, which, again, maybe that will be another program here. We'll see what kind of crowd we draw for that one. Uh, I get to work with grad students teaching uh, a thesis writing class, and I'll be teaching a marine, bi- a marine mammal class, which I think will be a big hit uh, next quarter as well. Um, and also, I get to take classes. So I'm actually sitting in on a communicating science to the public class being taught here at Birch uh, this quarter. Uh, I will say I've only been to one lecture, so if I don't do a good job, it's not their fault. It's still mine. Um, but it's fun, and I'm ha- really happy to here to talk about sharks, because there's a couple of things. Sharks are cool. I think they're cool. The other th- cool thing about uh, lecturing about sharks is that everybody really knows about sharks. They're in the press. They're on Shark Week. So people know about sharks. Sometimes they're correct. Um, not always. Um, But I just want to give you a quick outline uh, on the direction of the talk so we don't get lost like my colleagues and I down in Baja, California, doing some of this research. I'm going to start by giving you kind of a brief introduction to sharks and shark biology. This is not necessarily my research, but things that we know about them that I think are interesting. Uh, Then I'll turn and talk about their distribution and movement here in the Southern California Bight, which I'll define. Um, And then I'll talk a little about the effects of human impacts on those shark populations given that they live in uh, these habitats adjacent to where we live, and then talk a little bit about uh, shark mating. But we'll start with an introduction to shark biology because I think people are interested. I have to start by talking about ecology. I'm actually an ecologist. Um, You know, it's depending on who I talk to, an ecologist, a marine biologist, or whatever it might be. But I'm an ecologist, so I study sharks. We study the biology of the animal, but we also have to study the environment in which they live and how the animal interacts with that environment. Right? And it's not just the environment, but it's the other organisms that live there. What are the things that those animals might eat? What are the things that might eat them? How does that affect the way they interact with their environment? And of course, we as human beings are a major part of that environment. Every time we go into the ocean, we have an impact on the ocean. And perfectly uh, frank, anytime we do anything, whether it's on land or in the ocean, we do have an impact on the ocean. And of course, we are one of the top predators in the ocean, so we have to consider that as well. And kind of in food chain or ecology 101, who here's ever heard of a food chain? I can't see most of you, but I'll just take for granted that some of you have your hand up, right? So there are things that produce energy, these primary producers, they produce energy from the sun, things eat those, other things eat that, and so on and so forth as you move up this chain. But in reality, this is not how the ecosystem works. It's way more complex than that, right? Things eat each other. Sometimes if you're young, you eat one thing, and you get older, you eat something else, or your predator might be your prey and everything else. So it gets a little bit complex. Trying to understand all of these relationships is not easy, and it requires really kind of... There's been, a real, I should say, advances in technology that have allowed us to study some of these interactions much better than we could understand them before. So does this seem more appropriate? Does this make sense? All right. Still a little too simple. If we look at an ocean food web, it might look something more like this, right? (laughs) And add to the top of it that we actually can't, unless you're Jules Jaffe, who's giving the next talk, we don't actually get to see any of these things. He develops all sorts of cool oceanographic instrumentation that allows us to see these things. But we don't get to see them. So this is all happening. It's complex, and it's invisible. That's that's our starting point. And then we say, okay, let's try to figure this out. And it's really exciting. So again, the complexity is important. Right? These are not independent. It's not like, oh, I study the ocean, so that's all I'm going to focus on. There's birds, and there's people, and there's other things that connect the oceans to the land. Right? So that's all one big ecosystem. Again, humans being a major part of that. Right? And where do sharks now fit? Because I know you guys are here to hear about sharks, not ecology. So I'll get to this. Right? Um, where do sharks fit into this? Right? Are sharks, I mean, who here has a sense of sharks? Like everyone thinks they're top predators. Right? Who here thinks sharks, top predators, that's what makes them awesome? A couple of you, who thinks that they're primary producers and photosynthesize their food? (laughs) No, okay, good. Uh, So where do sharks fit into this food web? And the truth is they're everywhere, right? Sharks are incredibly diverse, and if I say the word shark, I'm not really doing them justice because they're so different and they're so diverse, and I'll talk about that in a second. right? How many different sharks are there? And I would guess, like, when I do this exercise in classrooms and things like this, you know, people kind of get a sense that there's probably more species than they know by heart. Right? There's actually more than I know by heart. And they all look different from one another. Right? So you know, how many different sharks are there? You know, the, generally, the answers I get when I ask this question are somewhere between 10 and 50 or 60 or whatever it might be. Right? But in reality, there's more than 500 species. Right? More than 500 species, and that's growing. Every year, we describe roughly one or two new species that we discover that we didn't either they were cryptic or so they look similar to something else we didn't know they were different, or they just had never been seen before. So this list is growing. I certainly don't know all 500 by heart, right? And if you look at them, they're different, right? Ranging from these just really colossal whale sharks to these really tiny, this is a pocket shark. So this is one of those newly discovered species that was just described this past year. Uh, It was discovered in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, right? Which, that's a full-grown adult shark. And you can see scaled to a person, right? So these are very different. Some sharks have hammers on their heads. Some have these really long, crazy tails, right? They are bizarre, and they are neat, and they are interesting, and we don't know much about them. And we're doing our best to learn about them. But if I were to ask you about a shark, most people just have one vision. And that vision generally is the white shark. And white sharks are really neat and cool and interesting. And we, they're important for the ecosystem. But they are certainly not the only thing out there, despite what Shark Week might tell you. <laughs> okay. Things that I think make them really interesting. So reproduction, right? Reproduction in sharks. So if I were to ask people, right, do mammals give live birth or lay eggs? Do people know the answer to that? Live birth, right? With a couple exceptions, the monotremes, but we don't need to talk about those. They give live birth, right? Um, How about birds? Lay eggs or give live birth? Lay eggs. What about sharks? Right? Not just both, but both and then some, right? Some lay eggs. And the Birch Aquarium, if you ever get a chance to come here during the day, they have really cool exhibits with the shark eggs. And sometimes you can actually see the little baby sharks swimming inside those eggs, which is awesome. And then some give live birth, and then some actually have eggs that hatch within the mother, and then they're born alive. We call that ovoviviparous. It's a very big word. Um, So that's really neat. But it's not just neat because it's cool, and it's not just neat because it's crazy. It's neat because sharks actually represent a really interesting lineage on the vertebrate tree of life. They split from all other vertebrates very early on. So by studying things like reproduction in sharks, we can actually learn about reproduction in all vertebrates. So studying sharks is not just about sharks, and it's not just about the ecosystem in which those animals live. It's actually about understanding the entire kind of vertebrate tree of life. So those are all organisms that have backbones, uh, like most of us. Um, And so (laughs) I'm glad some people caught up on that. Again, where do sharks live, right? That's a question that's a kind of seminal question in ecology. Where do these things live? And if I were to say, where does a shark live? I've already told you there's 500 different species or more than 500 different species. So where do these things live? And the answer is in the ocean, everywhere, right? You go in the intertidal Right? And when the tide's high, you have the leopard sharks and things coming in. Right? You go into the open ocean and there's things like mako sharks and blue sharks. And you go down into deep water and there's sleeper sharks and all these things that we never get to see. But they're everywhere. And they are important parts of all of these ecosystems. And again, to say that one studies sharks kind of implies that we know all of this. And the truth is, most everyone knows none of this, including those of us that study. Like if you ask me about deep sea sharks, I don't know that much about them. You know why? Because nobody does, because we don't get to see them very often, and they're hard to study. Um, But again, it's this diversity that really makes them interesting to me. That's what keeps it exciting to study sharks, not just because they're cool predators. It's because there's still so much we don't know, and so much that we need to know if we're going to be able to manage them and understand the larger ecosystems. Let's talk a little bit about what sharks eat, right? Again, we kind of alluded to this before, but sharks, major top predators. Yes, sometimes. So again, things like tiger sharks, white sharks, they're eating marine mammals, they're eating turtles, they're eating large fish. They are apex top predators, and that's you know, obviously very interesting, and that's what I think most people think of when you think of sharks. But, They are also mesopredator. Mesopredator means you're a predator, but you're eating lower on that food chain, right? So things like these leopard sharks and nurse sharks, they're eating snails. They're eating small fish. They're eating squid, right? They're not out there hunting mammals. They're not something that we have to worry about, right? Some are scavengers. So they're looking for areas where, like, let's say a big whale dies in the sea and sinks to the bottom. And then things like sleeper sharks will come and feed on that dead carcass. Even if the carcass is floating, you have things like white sharks actually that will act as scavengers, right? So they're an important part of the ecosystem, much like a hyena in the savannas of Africa. Then there's some that are filter feeders. Some of the biggest sharks are eating the smallest things. So megamouth sharks, whale sharks, basking sharks. So this is a basking up top and a megamouth down below. These are huge fish. These things are 40 feet long, right? And they're feeding on krill. And they're doing that by opening their mouth and swimming through the schools of krill and filtering those over their gills, which is really neat. And then there's some that I can't really describe in any other ways other than call them weirdos. OK? <laughs> the one that we have on top here is a cookie cutter shark. Right? Cookie cutter sharks are called cookie cutter sharks because they they're, they're about this big. They're small. But they feed on dolphins and huge tunas and other fish. But what they do is they have their mouths are kind of like a melon ball or an ice cream scoop. And they go and they bite a chunk off and leave a little circle that looks like you just took a cookie cutter to it. And they, they don't kill those animals. They just take a bite and swim on their merry way. Um, <laughs> and yet there have been a couple of people swimming between Hawaiian islands that have been bit by cookie cutter sharks, um, which is interesting. Then the one down at the bottom there is a Greenland shark. That's the, lo- the longest living vertebrate that we know of. And if you look closely, I know it's hard because the screen's small, but on the eye of that animal, there's a parasite. And that parasite is a bioluminescent copepod. These things live in deep water or under ice, right? They can't see, likely, because that, that parasite might make them blind, but it glows in the dark, and other things will come to check out and think, maybe that's something I can eat. And as those things try to eat that that, uh, that copepod, the Greenland shark then eats them. It's a trap, right? So lots of crazy cool things. So what I'm hoping to impress here is that when you start thinking about sharks, that we kind of broaden our minds. And remember that these are, this is a diverse group. And if I add in the rays, there's... At least six hundred species of ray, which is the shark's closest relative, right? So they're really diverse. They're really interesting, and I hope we get the chance to uh, to talk more about it. I'll be here after this talk if you want to go crazy. When I label or titled this shark this talk, Shark Geek, I really meant it. I could think of nothing better than hanging around and talking about sharks with people. All right. So, despite the fact that they're all over the food web. They are all predators. There's a couple instances of sharks that can feed on seagrass, but primarily they're predators whether their prey is small or big. And the question is, are predators important to the ecosystem? And time and time again, studies have been done to find out that they are, not just for the sake of these species themselves, but they have these huge impacts on the other species in those food webs, and they alter the behavior, they alter the nature of the food web, and if you remove the predators, it changes everything, and we can't predict what that change might look like. So whether or not you love sharks, like I do, or whether you're morbidly interested in them, you should care about them, because they are critically important to our ocean habitats. All right. Also, the question is, do we have to care about them? Are they in trouble? Right? Are sharks' populations stable or not? And again, lots of studies have looked into this. I know that I don't want to get into data too much in this talk. But I do want to point out that what we have here is that panel there on your right. Is each one of the little graphs is a different species of shark. On that x-axis, which is the horizontal, you have time. On the y-axis, which is the vertical axis, you have the population size. And what you should see in every single one of these is the population is decreasing. Right? That decreasing population is what could be potentially troubling. Because, again, it's not just for the strikes themselves. It's for their ecosystem effects. right? Why might they be decreasing? Well, there's lots of reason. We're destroying their habitat. These are lemon sharks in an island called Bimini that rely on the mangroves. We remove the mangroves to build golf courses and hotels. They can't live there anymore. Right? Pollution and toxins. Right? We're putting all sorts of chemicals and debris into the ocean, including lost fishing gear and plastics and other things which have effects on these animals. We eat their prey, right? so things like mako sharks that might eat tuna, when Atlantic tuna populations crash, what are the mako sharks going to eat? right? Their, their prey might disappear. But by and large, the biggest impact we're having on shark populations is overfishing. Right? We fish them. They are slow to grow. They are slow to reproduce. They don't rebound very quickly. And we can have really major impacts on their populations. But it's not all doom and gloom. Shark fishing can happen sustainably, and by and large in the US, we have kind of amazing sustainable shark fisheries. And when populations seem to be in trouble, we have mechanisms that allow us to stop fishing them or to take action when, when we need to. So I don't want to come here and say humans are terrible people, or they're the really only people, but we're terrible animals, right? Um, <laughs> but in reality, we have the ability to manage these populations well. But in order to do that, we need to understand these populations, and we have to learn about them. We need to learn their biology. We need to learn their ecology. We need to learn where they live when they live there and how they're interacting with their environment. And just as a plug, because I was told that I should do this, I'm also going to throw in here... because. I'm in the process of writing a children's book on sharks. And the idea is I teach the alphabet to the sharks and then science to their parents. Well, the kids already will get the science, but also the parents. And it's called abychondrithian, which is the the group that includes sharks, rays, and other cartilaginous organisms. Um, and so I'll just, I just want to give you an example of what this book looks like, because hopefully I'll be able to make progress on it. Um, here's I'll just give you a couple of them. Um, this is an angel shark for A. A is for angel shark. Their bodies dorsal ventrally compressed. When you see their feeding speed, you will be quite impressed. Right? Um, if you don't know what dorsal ventrally compressed is, that's the whole purpose. I want you to look it up after this talk. Uh, B is for bull sharks that can swim in lakes and rivers. They maintain neutral buoyancy with oil in their livers, right? That's how sharks actually can maintain their place in the water column. Why they don't sink to the bottom is they have lots of oil in their liver. Anyway, since we're at the aquarium, and I think it's a fun thing, I wanted to at least talk about that before I jump into actually marine biology and studying sharks. I'll start quickly by talking about... So this is a video of a great hammerhead from work I did in the Bahamas. I'm mostly showing it because I think it's what you guys all want to see, cool videos of sharks. Um, And it is fun. Like, the most fun part of my job is when I get to go out in the field and do fun stuff like this, right? And you really get to interact with these really neat animals. This is in the Bahamas. We're trying to put a tag on the back of it in shallow water. Um, Turns out to be a lot harder because they swim much faster than we give them credit, and they can actually spin in circles and swim really well. Um, But putting the tags on is one way that we're able to understand where these animals live, which I'll discuss in a second. But in reality, much to the chagrin of most incoming marine biology students, who who I'm interacting most of the time, right, marine biology is science. So we spend a lot of the time in the laboratory. This is one of my undergraduate techs doing some of the genetics work for me. I make him wear the wizard coat because it makes him feel important. Um, And then... coding, right? I never thought that I would have to learn computer code until I realized that I can collect all the data I want. But if I can't understand what that data means, it's useless, right? So I spend more of my time coding than doing anything else. Uh, And to be perfectly honest, it makes me really happy because I figured out how to do it. And that's the reason why I decided to teach biostats is because if I can do it, I know anyone can. Um, (laughs) And it's been really fun to to teach this to students. All right. I'll move forward to kind of the main players that I'll be talking about today, although one of them will be the focus, All right. So here's our cast. We have these pelagics. So pelagic means open ocean sharks uh, that live offshore um, San Diego. So the first one, we have the blue shark. We then have the short fin mako shark, uh, a common threshing shark, which has that common thresher, excuse me, that has the long tail, which is really neat. And focusing on an area that we refer to as the Southern California bite. The Bight is like a large embayment that runs from Point Conception, north of Santa Barbara, down to Punta Eugenia in Baja, California, which is a really neat, biodiverse, interesting uh, region because it's protected from the California Current, which w- runs down um, the north, uh, west coast of the United States. And so that actually allows for these really neat, interesting habitats to exist. And so it turns out there's a lot to learn about the area that we live in. Right? This is where we live, and it's a really important biodiverse habitat. And I'm mostly going to focus on thresher sharks today because I want to be able to tell a story without getting lost in jumping back and forth across species. right. First, I want to talk a little bit about the tools that we use to study sharks. So one is tagging. We go out onto the ocean. I'm no George Lucas. That's my ocean at the top there. Um, You'll see my animation, right? We go out, we catch the shark, we put a tag on its back right? And then the shark goes and swims around, and we go on our merry way. Some of the tags, it's just when they come to the surface and they happen to get caught, we learn where that animal moved to. Some of them, we actually follow it around on the boat with a hydrophone, which I'll talk a little bit. So a hydrophone is an underwater microphone. The tag makes a beeping sound. I sit on the front of the boat and just literally drive a few hundred meters behind the animal so we don't scare it, but we actually follow in its footsteps so that we can track where it's been, right? More recently, we've been using these satellite tags, which are really neat because you can put this on the animal. It then goes on its merry way, and I can come back and don't have to spend 70 hours at sea, right? But when it comes to the surface, it transmits data from where it's been, and it sends that signal back to my computer. And I can learn about where that animal was, even though I wasn't there to see it. And... It's almost becoming old hat now because again, every Shark Week uh, episode has tags. But tagging technology is improving every single year, and it really has allowed us to learn a lot more than we ever knew before. Right? I also use genetics. So if you look at these two mako sharks right here, they might look the same, but they're from different areas. So they have certain signals within their genes that can tell you where that animal was from. Um, And if anyone wants to talk about that in more detail, I'm happy to, but I'm not going to do it now. But if you go out and sample a bunch of sharks, you can compare their DNA. And by looking at their DNA, you can either say, this piece of meat or fin that I got in the market, I know where it came from or what species it was. Or if you see a bunch of sharks that live in two different areas, you can say, do their DNA look the same? Or do they look different? And if they look different, that's a pretty good sign that they're not interbreeding with one another, even if they look the same and we can't tell them apart. So again, another powerful tool that's relatively new that allows us to learn more about these animals than we ever did before. So I'm going to use that as a way to segue into understanding the distribution and where these animals live and where they move. so I'm going to start, again, focusing on the threshers here. I'm going to start by talking about the adult threshers. So this is work uh, done by a colleague of mine, Dan Cardamal, who has given this talk in years past. So some of you might have seen some of these results, but it's still interesting even if you've seen it before. Right? So he went out, tagged some of these adult thresher sharks offshore San Diego, right? then got into a boat with this hydrophone and followed them around. And this, for those of you who think marine biology is really glamorous, it really involves sitting in a small boat like that for... 72 hours with very little food, listening to a ping-beeping sound, trying not to lose an animal in the ocean that you can't see. Um, It's a really good way to know if you like somebody, is to be on a boat for this amount of time. Um, Luckily, I like Dan, so that's good. Um, But anyway, what did they find out? So these right here, these colored plots, that's a map. The white part, but the white part there is land, right? and then the blue part is the ocean, and the gray part is shallow water over the continental shelf. So what I want you to see is all the tagged animals moved, right? They do. These are highly migratory. These are animals that move a lot, right? They all moved in different directions, which makes it hard to understand what these animals are trying to do. But the most important part is that you don't see them over that shallow water, right? They are staying in deeper water. That's going to be critical because once we get to this next slide, right? So key here is they're moving a lot, but they're staying in deep water, right? A follow-up study did something very similar. We went out and we tagged the juveniles. And these are like the cutest sharks you can ever see. They're this long, but half of their body is tail and they have giant eyes. So if you want proof that sharks are not scary, just look at a picture of a baby thresher shark, I promise you. Um, And there'll be a couple coming up. Um, But we tagged and tracked them in a similar way, right? And here are the animals that we tracked. Same way we have the black line and everything to the right of that line is land, then everything to the left is water, that darker gray being the shallower uh, continental shelf. But what you notice here is, again, these animals move a lot, but they're spending all of their time over the shelf. right? So the adults spent all of their time off of the shelf. The juveniles are spending all of their time over the shelf. That was an interesting finding. Right? We can speculate all day about why that is the case, but just in and of itself, it was interesting. Right? And then we did similarly, we went out and we satellite tagged some of these juvenile threshers to think, maybe we just didn't have enough data. Right? So we put these satellite tags and we got movement data for longer periods of time. And lo and behold, they still spent the vast majority of their time over the continental shelf, far away from where their adults might be. All right? And this is just a really a neat side thing, so I put it up there. This is, instead of looking at a map like we're used to seeing it, this is the ocean depth. And this is really neat because what you're seeing is they're spending their time at night in shallow water and the time during the day in deep water, which is just a really cool finding because that is true for a lot of animals in the ocean. They are following plankton that are doing that same thing. The things that eat the plankton are doing that, and therefore, the things that eat the things that eat the plankton are doing that. So tying back to that food I put before, it really kind of ties that together so that the behavior and movement of these animals is, in fact, tied to the things that they eat. Again, that's a major part of ecology, right? OK, so why are adults and juveniles' distributions different from one another, right? That's something we have to start thinking about. Well. To do this, I had to kind of think back to work I did uh, a few years before in the Bahamas, where the lemon sharks have these nursery habitats inside the mangroves. And in these nursery habitats, the sharks have lots of prey, because there's lots of uh, crabs and shrimp and small fish there. But they also have protection from big sharks that can't fit in those mangroves roots. Right? And we call these areas where babies live and adults don't live nurseries. I know it's really creative, right? It's never, you've never heard it before. Um, so, We know that these coastal sharks have nurseries. Perhaps these pelagic sharks have nurseries too, right? So to do that, we have to kind of really dig down to what defines a nursery. And there's three things that define a nursery, right? It's you find the juvenile sharks there more often than you find them somewhere else, right? They remain in that habitat for long periods of time, and that they use that repeatedly over time, right? Uh, And we found evidence for all three of those things. So what's really neat is to say, yes, we know nurseries are important for coastal sharks, but you know what? They're, ner- they're important for these pelagic fish, too. So this habitat close to shore right, is a critical part of the habitat and the life cycle of these kind of open ocean, uh, highly migratory sharks. Hopefully that makes you think, wait, when I go into my backyard, I also have to think about the fact that I can have these impacts on these things that I normally think of as living far offshore. Okay. Um, this kind of led to our next question, and this is with a colleague of mine at the uh, Southwest Fishery Science, the NOAA office, just right next door. Uh, this is something that you see a lot in shark science. Right? Is you go out and you tag a handful of animals, and you learn, here's where this animal moved, here's where this animal moved, here's where this animal moved. But we don't get to put hundreds and hundreds of tags out because it's expensive and it's hard to catch the animals in the first place. So we have a hard time kind of making bigger statements about what happens to the species. How does the population respond to things? And that's kind of a problem because I'm not interested in where one animal moved. I'm interested in the behavior and the ecology of the species, right? So how do we deal with that? Well, it turns out coming back to these quantitative tools, we can, in fact, use these new... So we have new tag technology. We have new genetic technology. We also have new statistical technology, which allows us to do really exciting things and start asking more nuanced questions. And we wanted to know this about the threshers. But as you can see, we don't have that many animals tagged. So we can say, hey, we developed this cool statistical model. And I'm not going to bore you into what that looks like. But we can say that we did that and we know everything. But the scientist that is going to read the paper is going to say, well, how do you know it worked? Great. You're telling me something but it's not validated. So we had to validate it. It was a really long process. A project that I thought was going to take like three months ended up taking five years. But eventually, we were able to demonstrate that it worked, and we did that by using it on species that we had more data for, and then removing some of the data and saying, does it still work when we have less data? And lo and behold, it did. But what did we learn? Well, we learned that these thresher sharks move depending on their length. So the longer animals are more likely to make longer migrations. And these longer migrations might take them out of the safety of Southern California into high seas areas or down into Mexico, where they're exposed to perhaps less sustainable fisheries, right? They also move depending on the season, right? So we know that they like to be here in the late spring and early summer, right? We kind of knew that, but we actually able to demonstrate that statistically, which was important, and they do seem to differ on uh, their, whether they're male, male and female, and that depends um, you know, whether, how far they move and when they move. I just wanna point out there in the bottom is you have a baby thresher shark. Kyle, my colleague, not as cute, but the thresher shark. hopefully, you'll believe. Um, so again, the key is not being able to say, cool, we went out and we collected data and we made a discovery, because that's what we did at first, right? But then the next step was saying, cool, we made that discover, discovery, but what does it actually mean? What can we do with that data? So this is kind of the next step in doing that, is saying, all right, we know where they live, we know where they're moving, and now we have a better sense of what's driving those patterns, right? And that's critically important. Okay. That's my movement and, uh, and uh, distribution. If you want to talk more about it and you want to talk about makos and blues, I'm happy to afterwards. Uh, but, again, these are animals that are moving throughout Southern California and down into Mexico. These are areas that are heavily used by humans. right? We have lots of impacts on the environment. right? So let's see how that might impact these animals. All right. For those of you that don't know, Southern California has a reputation. right? And that reputation is it's smoggy, It's dirty. I know that it's not true. We love it here. We just had an amazing sunset, right? But on the right day, on the right, you know, at the right moment, you might see this, especially if you go to our neighbor to the north, right? We know that we have issues with plastics that we're putting into the water. We also have chemicals that come from industry, whether it's agriculture or shipbuilding and other things. And all of those make their way into the water. We know that, right? But the question is, do we see this reflected in the wildlife, is this likely to have an impact on the animals? And the only way to do this is to go study the animals and say, do we see evidence of these same pollutants inside the animal, in their tissue? All right? And there's a couple different ways that these can get into the uh, or accumulate in the tissue of an organism. So this is kind of my professor hat going back on. Right? So there's two ways. One is bioaccumulation. And what that means is as I'm moving and swimming in this uh, environment, I'm accumulating more exposure to chemicals. And the longer I'm in that environment, right, the more of those chemicals I'm going to accumulate. Right? So uh, the longer I'm alive... The longer I'm there, the more chemicals I'm going to have in my body. The other is called biomagnification, right? So if, what this means is small things are living in the environment, and they are accumulating toxins or chemicals, right? The things that eat them are accumulating their own toxins, but when they eat it, they also accumulate those toxins. And as you move up this kind of food chain or food web, you're not only accumulating the toxins you're exposed to, but you're accumulating the toxins that your food was exposed to, Right? Sharks tend to live a long time, and many of them, particularly the ones that we're looking here, feed relatively high on the food web. So they are potentially going to expose to a lot of these chemicals. So I worked with a colleague that's really good at ecotoxicology, which is a field that's not my expertise. I am not a chemist, uh, but l- luckily Katie Lyons is. Um, and so, what did we find? So, what's really neat, and I know these are this is kind of a weird figure, and it's hard to see right now. So I apologize for that. But let's just look at that top curve for mako sharks, right? What we found, right, is. On the x-axis here, you have the length of the, animal, the the age of an animal. And on the y-axis is how many chemicals they have in their body, right? So it turns out the babies that have only just been born have a lot of chemicals in their bodies. And the reason for that is because their mothers did. And the mothers, when they were developing in utero or in egg, passed those chemicals on. Right? So they're born with a load, a chemical or toxic load, a contaminant load. Right? As they grow and they're feeding, hopefully, a little bit lower on the food web and they're growing quickly, right? they actually dilute some of the, the, the concentration of those chemicals in their body. So they lose it. They're not really losing it, but the concentration is lower. Which is, for the record, if anyone's worried about eating sharks because of the chemical concentration, I'm not trying to encourage you to eat sharks. But if you do... Small ones, and you can see in that kind of mid-range, tend to have the lowest concentration of things like mercury and other things. But as they get bigger, they grow slower, they're eating bigger things, they start accumulating chemicals again. So I don't want to get into this in vast detail because I know I'm going to make an interesting topic boring pretty quickly. But as opposed to kind of going into the nitpicky details here, what I want to say is, there are detectable levels of a lot of these contaminants that we're putting into the water in the tissues of these animals, right? So they are incorporating these into their bodies. What that, how that affects their survival and their behavior, we don't really know yet. We are kind of get to that, but we're not there yet. But we can say they do accumulate these chemicals, right? Which is potentially a problem. So much so... That this is a study that I worked on looking at thresher sharks, looking at the microbes that live on the skin of thresher sharks. So, this is a colleague of mine, he's a microbiologist that can do all sorts of cool genetic sequencing, right? And he was like, hey, let's see if we can learn anything about the sharks by seeing what microbi- the microbiome that lives on their body, right? And it turns out thresher sharks have a very particular community of of microbes that uh, live on their body different than what's found in the water around them. And not only that, but the microbes that live on their body seem to have the ability to digest heavy metals. And why is that the case? It's because the environment in which they live is high in heavy metals. And it turns out the environment in which they live is the shark's body, right? So that means these animals are being exposed to these chemicals. They are taking them in, again, what that means, we're still working on that. We'll see how quickly we can get, get the answer. But it's still important to know that it's happening. We know where they live. We know where they're moving. We know that it could affect their, their abilities to survive and, and live in this environment. I also want to talk a little bit about their breeding, because shark breeding is really interesting. I mentioned that before. We don't know that much about it because we don't get to see them mate. We don't get to see them pup very often, especially these pelagic fish. So what can we learn about their breeding just from uh, the data that we are able to get? So in the course of studying makos and threshers, I was lucky enough to get one pregnant mako shark that was caught by a fisherman uh, near Australia, and one pregnant thresher shark that was caught by a fisherman uh, here in Southern California. And I was able to look at the pups, the babies that were in the female, and compare them genetically to their mother. Essentially, what we're doing is doing a paternity test, right? So who is the father? And no one in this room is sitting on the edge of their seat, so we're not going to have a brawl, I don't think. But who is their father, right? And interestingly enough, in both of those litters, so both in the Makos and the Threshers, they had more than one father. So that's one litter of sharks. These are siblings, twins even, that have different fathers, right? We call this multiple paternity, and it's neat, (laughs) right? Right. It has been seen in in other organisms, including mammals. Um, But we saw it in both of these species. And these are species that live in the open ocean, right? They're not necessarily encountering each other at very high rates. Um, Maybe they are, but we don't know that. Um, So the question then, is this rare in sharks? Was this a bizarre finding? Or is this normal? And I put this don't tweet thing up there. I'm not that worried about it. But my colleagues, this is active research happening, and they asked me to do that. It's funny because this is being you know, recorded and it's going to be shown. Um, <laughs> I'm not giving away our secrets, though, so I'm not that worried about it. But the question is, is multiple paternity rare in sharks? And the answer to that, this is a crazy graph. I don't want to look into it too much. But what I want to say is the x-axis here is the percentage of litters that have more than one father in them. And the y-axis is different species. So what we're seeing is, no, this is not a crazy weird thing we discovered, but it is in fact the rule. It seems that multiple paternity is actually really common in sharks, right? So having multiple fathers in a single litter, not uncommon at all, right? Again, that will beg the next question as to why, right? And for a long time in a lot of the studies that have looked at this, it's kind of been the same answer. We don't know, but we think it's because females just can't prevent males from mating with them. It takes a lot of energy, and, you know, shark mating is not that nice. It kind of it looks violent to us at the very least. And it's probably just convenient saying, like, look, we'll mate with you. It's easier than not mating with you. <laughs> is that documented? Absolutely not. Why is this the reason? I mean, you can think about who did a lot of that research, right? Maybe, maybe they're macho. I don't know. But we wanted to know, is this likely true? So we wanted to investigate is, do females have a choice in multiple paternity? And again, I can't go into details with this yet, but our analysis that we've done actually suggests that, yes, female choice is likely what might be driving multiple paternity, not convenience, right? Not saying, hey, we don't want to mate with you. And the truth is, female sharks tend to be larger than males, Shark mating tends to be brutal, so it's not surprising that if this is occurring that it's because there's a benefit for the females. And what might that benefit be? We can't say with certainty, but it might have something to do with the fact that the more fathers that they're able to mate with, the more likely that their offspring are, are going to have whatever trait might be beneficial in the future, and we don't know the answer to that yet. Right? So the more, dif- the more mates you have, the more genetically diverse your offspring are going to have, and maybe that might inc- 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 improve the survival of your lineage down the road. It's not like they're making a conscious decision, but evolutionarily, that is what we think might be happening. Um, So those were just some of the stories that I think are interesting, some of the things that keep me excited about the work that I get to do, and some of the reasons why I'm excited to be able to talk to you guys about this as well. So thank you for listening.
1: The shark tagging. And my question is Do you specifically go looking for threshers or makos or whites or do you tag what you can find?
0: <laughs> so that's a good question. So the question, because I have to repeat it because I'm mic'd, um, the question is When we go out to try tag the animal, can we target the species we want to tag or do we just get lucky and tag whatever we find? And the answer to that is it depends. In some cases, you know, I have a colleague, Andy Nozel, that works here on the leopard sharks. Right? He, when he wants to tag a leopard shark, he knows where the leopard sharks are aggregating. He uses uh, the right gear to help target those animals. And we can do that for the most part. Um, Some cases, no, we kind of all work together. There's cases where uh, NOAA used to run a um, juvenile shark tagging survey, which is uh, that picture that had myself and Dr. Jeff Graham on it, where we we were targeting makos largely, makos and blues, but we caught other species, and if we caught them and we had the tags available, we would tag them because it's an opportunity to get data on those other animals. The thing to consider is that these tags can be expensive, And if you've written a grant and you need to tag and you need to have as many of one species tagged because you want to try to answer those questions, you might be reticent to put it on a different species because you might get your your target species next. But I would say that it's a combination of both of those things. We're opportunistic when we can be, and we try to target them as best we can when we can do that. I. um,
1: I stand a off the coast here, and this year, a couple months ago, it looked to me like a white breaching out near the kelp beds, and a couple of other friends have seen it this year. Do you know what causes that behavior? Is it common, and why they might all of a sudden be noticed doing it this year?
0: Um, so that's a combination of good questions. So people, including our question answer, have have seen... Juvenile white sharks breaching out of the water. So why they do it, particularly juveniles, I don't, I don't have a good answer for that, unfortunately. We don't know yet. Um, is it uncommon? No, juvenile white sharks are known to breach. Uh, and as well as thresher sharks are also known to breach. Makos are also uh, known to breach. Um, so it's not... It's not a particularly rare, uncommon behavior. We don't see it very often, because there aren't you know, that many of these animals. But I will point out that, to the second part of your question as to why we might be seeing them more often, I think that's a two-part question. In one part, it's because there is evidence that white shark populations are recovering, right? So they are a protected species, their numbers were low, and they do seem to be recovering. It does not They don't recover quickly, right? They grow slowly, but their numbers do seem to be increasing. That might be why we're seeing more of them. The other side of that coin is that there's more people stand-up paddleboarding, putting out drones, just generally being in the water than ever before, and that's going to lead to more sightings as well. So I think it's a combination of more people with better tools to see the ocean, as well as What I hope is a really good sign that this population is in fact uh, starting to increase.
1: Yeah, my question has to do with uh, sharks sleeping, and can you talk a little bit about uh, shark sleep patterns and whether or not you were able to determine whether or not the sharks you studied were sleeping during your uh,
0: survey work? Right. So the question is: sharks sleeping? Do sharks sleep? Can we determine that? And that again, you guys are asking great questions, and like it sucks for me to have to say I don't know to a lot of them, and I, uh, (laughs) but. Uh, The best I can really say is I don't know. Then I can speculate a little bit, right? So there are different species of sharks, and some of them uh, have to swim to breathe. So we call them ram ventilators. They swim with their mouth open. That's what forces water that's high in oxygen over their gills. Those animals have to be swimming at all times. If they're not swimming, they could drown, right? Does that mean they don't get to sleep? I don't know. Maybe they can control, like, shut off parts of their brain at different times. There are people that are shark neurologists that would know much more about that than I do. Um, But uh, as far as I know, it's never been documented that they're sleeping. Other species can, in fact, rest on the bottom because instead of having to swim to breathe, they can pump their gills. And when they pump their gills, that forces water over them and they breathe that way. Do those animals sleep? They certainly rest on the bottom. I can't say for sure whether they're sleeping or they're just hanging out or what they're doing, but they can certainly at least rest and not be swimming at all times. These pelagic fish, all three species that I study, uh, are ram ventilators, so they are swimming at all times. When we're tracking them, we don't get a break, we are moving, or we will lose them. They do not stop swimming at any point in time. Thank you for your
1: presentation. Uh, You have not touched on the blue shark. Now I have fished blue water out here since the 50s. And at one time the blue shark was the most prevalent in the Catalina Mm bike. They were everywhere. Then we had the advent of the drift field nets for swordfish. and there are literally no blue sharks in the bike anymore. But we see no more idol fish. So my question to you is: are there still blues here? What is the reproductive rate and how soon can we expect to see the researchers?
0: So that's a good question. So the question is that there were blue sharks that were very commonly sighted off of Southern California. We don't see them nearly as often as, as we once did. Um, there used to be dive operations based on going to cage dive with blue sharks offshore. I and mean, there's still a couple that do it, but they're not nearly as profitable as they once were because you don't see as many blue sharks. So there's a couple things. The question is, is that because the blue sharks' populations have decreased, or have they moved somewhere else? Right, and that is a tough question to answer because all we can say is, how often do we see them in our surveys? That, that could mean that they're not around or it could mean that they are, change their distribution caused by things like their prey moving or water temperatures changing and other things like that. Um, blue sharks, I can say, can actually have a lot of pups at once. They can have large litter sizes. Um, so for a shark, especially a big body shark, they might actually reproduce relatively fast relatively, I'm talking, compared to other large-bodied sharks, not compared to, let's say, bony fish, like a single grouper might have a million eggs at a time, right? So not compared to other fish, but compared to other sharks, we think they might be able to reproduce relatively quickly. Um, In terms of the larger-scale studies that are done by fishery management organizations, they have not been able to demonstrate that blue shark populations have suffered significantly But anecdotally, we still see people like yourself and myself that are seeing fewer of them. The problem is, based on our current methods, we don't have the ability to say whether they're disappearing or moving or what might be happening. So that's something that if anyone here is interested in becoming a shark biologist, we can talk. Maybe we can figure out a way to to get a better answer to that question. Hi, Dali. So because baby sharks accumulate chemicals from their mothers and because sharks give birth in different ways, have there been any differences in chemical exposure between sharks that are given live birth and sharks that are half the You guys are asking great questions. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> uh, the, the truth is that this is a relatively new field of study that needs a lot more. There, the reproductive modes of sharks is actually a lot more complex than what I showed here. Um, there's, there's a lot more nuance to it. And the question is, do those do, do different reproductive modes affect the amount of chemicals that they accumulate, particularly at birth in the, in the young? And I, can, I know that the answer to that is yes. But the answer is less satisfying because I I don't know how so. And there is some information on the literature, and I'm not an expert on it, so I'm not going to pretend to be. And there's still a lot more that we need to know. Um, But yeah, the different physiology of the animal is certainly going to have an impact on um, the amount of contaminants. We even see that within these three species. The makos uh, seem to have the highest contaminant load at birth, much more so than the blues or the threshers.
1: Thank you for a nice presentation. I noticed that you said something about the age of the Greenland shark, and I was wondering what is that age? You said okay. it was one of the lo- it was the longest living uh, right. vertebrate. And then also on your shark, the threshold, what is its average age or long okay. age?
0: Um, so the first part of that question, there was a study recently done. So you know how, does everyone here know how you can age trees by counting the growth rings? So it turns out that's true for some animals, too. So with sharks, you can often count bands that grow in their vertebra uh, to, to age them. And it turns out you can also uh, look at the lens of their eye. And so there's a study that came out a couple of years ago that demonstrated uh, that uh, some Greenland sharks can live for close to 500 years old, that they might not even be reproductively mature until they're 150 um, and these are animals that live in cold water, so they're likely to have very slow metabolisms. Um, but that is really old. And they can also look at signatures of, of um, some of the, the bombs that were tested to see at what point you see this like, signal of radiocarbon and then how many rings they've grown since then. And that also supports that, that these things might be living for, again, close to 500 years. Um, thresher sharks don't live quite that long. Um, we the I again. There's there's varying studies that have different answers. But my best guess, based on all the literature I've seen, is somewhere around the kind of order of magnitude, somewhere around fifty or something in that general range. Uh, and again, it's a best guess because there's multiple studies that have slightly different answers. Your lecture was um,
1: fantastic. Okay. Um, my question is: Do all sharks have that like? Um, Ampoule of
0: Lorenzini? That's a good question. So, the ampoule of Lorenzini, so, do all sharks have the ampoule of Lorenzini? So, the ampoule of Lorenzini is a special sensory organ that sharks have that allow... So it's a bunch of kind of tube-filled pores, largely found distributed around the head, but centered around kind of the snout, nose area, that allows them to detect electrical uh, conductance or ele- electricity in the water column. And yeah, so I think all species of sharks and, their, and rays will all have ampulia Lorenzini. Do they all have the same sensitivity to electricity? Likely not. One of the things, one of the reasons we think hammerheads might have evolved that weird hammerhead shape is because it spreads out those ampullae of Lorenzini over a broader area, allowing them to find uh, prey that might be hidden under the sand. Um, so it's a really neat thing that they can do, and all sharks and rays seem to, to have at least some ability to do that. <laughs>